Hello, and welcome to Montgomery Talks. We're the podcast of Montgomery County Issues, and we're coming to you from Montgomery Community Media's podcast studios in Rockville. I'm Doug Tolman, senior reporter at MCM. Today, our guest is Valerie Irvin, a former union organizer. Her first elective office was the Montgomery County School Board, capturing a seat in 2003. In 2006, she won the District 5's county council seat. She left the council in 2013 to take a job for the Center for Working Families. In 2018, Baltimore County Executive Kevin Kamenitz chose her as his running mate in the Democratic primary for governor. In May 2018, Kamenitz died of a heart attack, moving Irvin to the top of the tippet. In case anyone slept through the last few months, Ben Jealous won the Democratic primary and then was thoroughly trounced by Larry Hogan in the general election. Welcome, Ms. Irvin. It's so nice to be here. It's so exciting that MCM is doing podcasting now. and I think it's a great way to get a lot of information out to the public because people really rely on podcasts these days, and there are many that I follow, so this is just going to be another one. I'd like to start off with your background, because I feel like you've been around forever, but then there, there are a lot of things I don't know about you. You were born in Guam. I was. I was born on Anderson Air Force Base in Guam. My father was a career Air Force uh, enlisted man, and he was stationed out there, and uh, I was born on Guam, and I think we lived there for a couple of years before he was transferred out of the South Pacific and, and into Roswell, New Mexico. Have you ever been back? Oh, yeah. my It's an interesting story. My mother's family actually migrated from Oklahoma to eastern New Mexico. So my mother actually went to high school in Artesia, New Mexico, just like 45 minutes south of Roswell. And she and my father actually met there before they were stationed to the uh, to Guam. My mother met him at a dance in, at Walker Air Force Base at the NCO club there. So my family, you know, a lot of people ask me, like, there are not that many African-American people in New Mexico, but my mother's family, when, when the Great Migration from the South to the North was happening, there was also a migration West. So my father and my mother's family both were in that pattern of migration to the West. So my mother's family ended up in Oklahoma, and my father's family ended up in Southern California. And Roswell, New Mexico. And uh, I have an aunt and an uncle that live in Roswell. Anything exciting they've ever seen in the sky? No. Oh. Okay. <laughs> and you've also lived in Panama and South Dakota. Yeah. My father was stationed to uh, Panama when I was in the fourth grade, I believe. And we lived there for almost four years. And then he did a tour of duty in Vietnam. And while he was in Vietnam, we lived in Roswell, New Mexico, again, because the military base there was was changing over, but they had housing for lots of families while the while their father was being deployed. They didn't call it deployed then, but stationed uh, to uh, Thailand and Vietnam during the war. How did you end up in Maryland? So I was, again, back to New Mexico. I went, my father ended up retiring from the Air Force after being stationed in Albuquerque at Kirtland Air Force Base, which is where I met Donna Edwards. Such a funny story. I have to tell this because it's really interesting. Our fathers both knew each other in 1952 and met in Okinawa during the Korean War prior to meeting our mothers. So one day my father was driving into the gate 
onto the base and he looks over and he sees this man who he recognized and he rolled down his window. His name was John. He called him Johnny. And he said, Johnny. They had just moved. They had just been stationed to Kirtland Air Force Base. So Donna Edwards' family actually lived catty-corner to ours on the same Air Force Base on the same block. So I went to high school in Albuquerque. It was very politically engaged, of course. (laughs) And I started working in a Safeway store in high school, bagging groceries. And I joined the union and became very involved in the union for a few years. And then I was sort of recruited from that local union in New Mexico to come to Washington, D.C., sight unseen, I came here and took a job as the assistant director of the women's department at the International Union, United Food and Commercial Workers Union. I was only 29 years old, never been here, moved across the country, and uh, never left. And you and Donna Edwards have been tight ever since. We've been friends ever since because our fathers were friends, which then our, our mothers still to this day, both our fathers have passed away, but our mothers are still friends. You know, we visit with them. And uh, Donna and I have been friends since we were 10 and 11. Wow. Wow. And your first elective office was for the school board. What, what, yeah. Why did you decide to run? You know, I never intended to be one of those people who ran for office. It was like the furthest thing from my mind. However, I had two children who were attending Montgomery County Public Schools, and I started seeing things that were disturbing to me. And as someone who doesn't bite her tongue is why I started writing these letters to the editor at the Gazette at the time. And Roscoe Nix, who a lot of people will remember as a as an amazing person, but a stalwart in the community, in the African-American community, very well known. He used to do television here at MCM. I don't know what it was called then. And he noticed this letter that I wrote to him. And when we still had phone phone books, for those people who might not remember that, he looked up my name in the phone book and called me on the phone. And he said, young lady, let's meet for lunch. So I met with him for lunch. And it was the idea was broached then about have you ever considered running for the Board of Education? And I said, oh, no, not me. I'm, you know, I'm just really engaged in the PTA. At the time, I was PTA president at all three of my son's schools. And I said, I'm just going to do this for now. To make a long story short, that didn't last long. And so there was a real recruitment effort going on to get me to run. And it, it was terrifying to me as someone who never saw myself in that arena. And it, I ran on that cycle. For those who are listening who have done this know, there are two different cycles you run in for school board. One takes a whole year. And I didn't know that at the time. So I, I literally was running for a whole year before the election. And the only African-American woman to ever serve on the school board was Odessa Shannon. And she was many years before my election, but she got very engaged in my campaign. I'm still very good friends with her today. And it was a pretty incredible experience. And I never thought I would keep going. I thought that was going to be it. I was going to do my service to the community on the Board of Education. And then something else unforeseen happened. And that was Council Member Tom Perez, the District 5 Council Member, decided he was not going to run for re-election, which created an open seat. And he and I had, I used to work for George Leventhal as his chief of staff. And Tom Perez's office was right across the hallway from, from my office. And one day he said, you know, I'm not going to run for re-election. 
election, you should consider running for that seat. Once again, which happens with a lot of women, we say, oh, no, not me. Like, I can't, I can't do that. But I ended up doing it. I, I went to the Board of Elections where you go register as a candidate the last day that you could register, like 40 minutes before the office closed. And I did it all by myself and didn't tell anybody till the next day. As I recall, there was a little bit of controversy with doing it at the last minute for District 5. Yes. Somebody was expecting you to run countywide. You know, it's it's interesting that you picked up on that story. I think why people were really upset with me is because it was a crowded field. And people, I think, saw me having some sort of like leg up. I never saw that. But our county executive, Mark Elrich, was also running in the District 5 primary and was none too happy <laughs> About me That's getting, what I remember. That's was what, none too happy about me getting in the in the race. Right. So uh, <laughs> buried the hatchet, or does he still bear a grudge? No, I mean, I I spoke to him right before the primary. I thought it was clear he was going to be the winner. But there were, you know, we both served on the council for the those two terms. He ended up running at large, and so we came in the council at the exact same time. And we worked on legislation together. So you know, there we had some bumpy we had some bumpy moments. But at the end of the day, I have a, a tremendous amount of respect for how long he has been in the game. Game, and that he went all the way to to become the county executive, which was which was a pretty incredible story in and of itself. Because of your, or aside from your impressive resume, one of the reasons we're inviting you here is because of Black History Month. And yeah. I was curious, what does that mean to you? Uh, it means a lot to me. Uh, you know, my father died in 2003, right before I won my race for Board of Education. And that was a big deal for me because growing up, both my parents were very much outspoken during the civil rights movement. My father actually more than my mother, but we would sit around our dinner table and talk about the politics of the day. And my father was born in Tuscaloosa, Alabama, and he lied about his age to get into the Air Force to escape the Jim Crow South. We really, as children, didn't really have a great understanding of what that meant until my father came back from Vietnam and we were coming in from Panama. We are we took a plane from Panama City into Charleston, South Carolina. We got a car and we were driving cross country to get to Albuquerque, which was his next duty station. Somewhere between Charleston, South Carolina and, I don't know, Georgia, we had to stop at a gas station. We were in a station wagon. There were five, five of us kids and we drove up to the gas station and the man came out and said, we do not serve and he said the N-word. And all of, all of us, you know, we were still young kids at the time. We had not witnessed anything like that in our entire lives. And I just remember how my father handled it. He did not say a word. He just got back in the car and drove off and didn't talk for like a very, very long time. So what I learned from that experience was that there was, you know, inequality and it hit home in a way that still st sticks with me to this day. Because when I told my dad that I was moving to Maryland, this was in 1987, and my father sat down with me and he said, well, don't make, make no mistake about it, Valerie. He said, you're moving south. 
And so he, he was afraid. He, he was still had, he in his mind had all these things conjured up about how things hadn't changed very much and that I needed to be careful. He did come out and visit me a couple of times before he passed away and loved, loved Silver Spring. But he had a lot of stories that he told all of us about how hard it was to be him, a, this little boy growing up in the deep South, in the Jim Crow South, and how he wanted for us to have a life that was very, very different from that. And I think he would have been so excited to have witnessed me not being sworn in as a member of the Board of Education because education clearly, especially of my father's generation, was such a big deal. So, you know, I was the only one in my family that went to college and I made sure both my sons went to college. And so for Black History Month, it's just for me remembering that it wasn't that long ago that these things happened. And I think for young people, I always say this to my sons and people younger than them. Just remember, this wasn't 200 years ago. This was a generation ago when Black people couldn't drink water from the same, you know, from the same water fountain. When my father tells a story about he came back home from Okinawa and they flew into New York City and got on the train to come to Washington, D.C. And so all the Black soldiers were able in New York to get on the train and sit wherever they wanted. But as soon as the train got to the Mason-Dixon line, the train stopped and all the black soldiers were told that they had to go to the back of the train. My father never forgot that because when he came here to visit, he wanted to go see Union Station and told us all the story of in 1952. It was 1953 then that there there was still such deep racism in, in the country and that he'd served his country all those years and still was not seen for being, you know, a patriot. All people saw was a black man in a uniform. And so for me, this is just a remembrance in February to know that what I've been able to do in my life has made such a tremendous, it's meant a lot to not only my community, but I see this in my own family as a legacy to my children and my grandchildren that you can do anything. We, we live in an amazing country where even though we still have to fight for equality and we may have to do that for a very, very long time, you can still do whatever you want to do. And I think that's an important lesson. And so my mother was able to come and uh, to my swearing in both at the county council and at, at the Board of Education. You know, I sort of I, I sort of well up with a lot of pride about that because I didn't I'm not from here, but I've lived here longer than I've lived anywhere in my entire life. So I consider Maryland my home now. And for a kid who grew up moving around every couple of years, it was great to be able to raise my two boys in Silver Spring. And they know the same kids that they went to kindergarten with. My youngest son went to Maryland. So he, he was born here. He went through Montgomery County Public Schools. You know, he's like a son of Maryland, went to the University of Maryland and is settling in. So for all of this, you know, it's a, it's a, it's a great country we live in, but we can't sit on our laurels because we've seen under this administration what can happen if you fall asleep on it. We'll take this moment to, to take a break. We'll, we'll come back to this one after the break. I'm Doug Tolman, senior reporter at MCM, speaking with Valerie Irvin, and we'll be right back. MCM, your community media center, is making Montgomery County a great place to live through programs like 21 This Week. Montgomery County's hardest-hitting political talk show keeps you up to date with the local political scene. 
Montgomery Community Media. Our middle name is Community. And we're back with Valerie Irvin on Montgomery Talks. We just got through talking about Black History Month. And it's this, this story seems to have died down, thankfully, but it still seems like I'd like to know what your reaction is to what happened in Virginia with Ralph Northam, Mark Herring, Justin Fairfax. It just seems like it was a... It's so, it's so odd and unusual of a story that not, not that what they did was, well, and what they did was odd and unusual, but that all three of the leaders of the state, the governor, the lieutenant governor, and the, what, what was the third guy's uh, role? I'm forgetting. Uh, he's, uh, attorney general. L- uh, attorney general. All three had major issues around their character. First with Northam. I don't know what got into him when he came out and tried to explain himself. I just think he made it so so much worse. Either you are one of those guys in that picture or you're not. And he wasn't a teenager. He was, you know, 24, 25 years old in medical school. He knew whether he was in that photograph or not. And if he had reason to doubt, that was enough for me to say, you know what, I don't think you should stick around. And then he talks about putting on shoe polish to be, you know, Michael Jackson. So he just kept digging a deeper hole, which showed to me at that point, you don't know if you can believe anything he says. Forget about the racism that that conjured up. But can he be trusted to tell the truth about other things? And for me, that was the litmus test for me. And that was enough for him to be taken out of office or resign however he needs to do it. But I, I don't believe anybody can trust him anymore because I don't know what's true, what's false. It just made me feel very, very uneasy. As for the lieutenant governor, when the second woman, it didn't matter to me, one woman or two, but when the second woman came out and said that, you know, he, this guy has a problem and I don't think he can be trusted in office either. So for me, I just think that people who are leaders in the state of Virginia need to be getting together right now, figuring out what options they have. As for the third gentleman, he seemed to sort of go into hiding or something because he, or he was smart enough not to be quoted for any story, but it's so disturbing in 2019 that the governor can't decide whether or not he was in a picture with a a guy in a KKK hood. Just so utterly disturbing. And I wouldn't trust him as far as I could throw him. So, and I think he and the lieutenant governor need to move aside. As I understand the, the way Virginia operates, it would mean a Republican would then be in charge of the state. I think if Northam stays and the lieutenant governor stays and the third gentleman stays, what that creates for Democrats is a big problem. I think Virginia has come a long way in terms of its sort of overall, its its state's overall politics. And, and a lot of that's driven by voters in Northern Virginia and women. Women had a lot to do with the big gains on the Democratic side in Virginia. And if there's a question at all that the lieutenant governor, in fact, did the horrible things that he's accused of doing, he cannot stay. And even if the Republican who's only sitting there because of a coin a coin, co- a coin toss becomes the governor, I think that in some ways, as crazy as this is going to sound, may be better for Democrats going into the next cycle than keeping all three of those guys in office. I think it's a big stain on Virginia as a state, but because there are all three Democrats, even better 
bigger. And they have to pay attention to how women are going to be viewing these decisions going into the next, you know, election cycle. I think it could be a, a real, real big problem for the, for the Virginia Democrats. This may be a pointless question, but I'll ask it anyway. You know, Northam has said he wants the rest of his, his term to be about healing the racial divide. If you don't believe what he has to say, then I'm going to assume you don't think much of that, that announcement. Well, I watched his interview with Gail, um, what's her last name? I forget, the reporter that interviewed him yesterday, I think, or the day before, but he seemed so uncomfortable and to me, disingenuous. Someone made a great point to me the other day, had Northam been the kind of guy that was always in the fight for civil rights, who worked hard to pass legislation on behalf of, you know, people of color to get rid of some of the civil uh, civil war statutes whatever. He had no history of working on behalf of the civil rights movement. Zero. None. He was not known in Virginia for being that guy. And so for him to all of a sudden say, oh, let me make my next four, my next four years be about, you know, reconciliation and, you know, smoothing all of this over. I just don't think anybody buys into it. So let's get Back to things that are more local. Let's talk about your aspirations. Mm -hmm. Elrich has been in office about, is it three months? Mm -hmm. One assumes he won't be one and done, but he is 69. So if he chooses to retire at the end of this term, no one would fault him. And some people have to be thinking about 2022. So let's pretend we're two of those people. <laughs> if there is an opening on the county executive lot, it's going to be another crowded race. You've got Reamer, Navarro, and Rice, who are all term limited on the council, who would probably love to move into the executive spot. Not that they have made any noise that they want to, but Leventhal, Berliner, Krasnow, and Blair and Frick would probably love a second chance at trying to run for county executive. It'll also be an open race for governor with uh, Larry Hogan term limited. And I'm sure there's going to be a crowd in that one for both parties. So where do you fit in? That's a really interesting question. Let's start in Montgomery County. Ike Leggett always told me that he thought it was a mistake for council members to run for executive right after they leave the council. He believed that people should leave the council, do something else maybe for a little while, and then come back. And I think there's a lot of wisdom in that. The council is a legislative seat. It's not an executive seat. And I think that people need executive experience to be able to manage a government the size of Montgomery County's government. I see in the next four years, a lot of qualified people are going to be looking at running for county executive. And I think even though I just said what I like it said to me was good advice, I would hope that Nancy Navarro would take a serious look at running for county executive. Why? In a lot of the counties around us and the cities nearby, including Baltimore City and Washington, D.C., Prince George's County, you have three women of color who are at, at, the, at the helm. Montgomery County's never even had had a woman county executive, but I think people are ready for that. And when you see the numbers of women that got elected to Congress in this last cycle, there is something happening where women are now stepping up saying, well, wait a second, <laughs> where have we been and why are we not being taken seriously? Uh, my time away from the county has been actually very good for me because I've been able to do different things and actually even go deeper into what I think makes a good executive. But I'm not going to run for county executive in Montgomery County. But I would hope that Nancy Navarro is one of, I hope, 
a handful of well-qualified women that live here in the county that could represent it very, very well in the in the region. In Montgomery County, for those who don't know this, is a majority minority community. If you add all three of the big of the larger groups of minority residents into a block, that's a significant group of people. And I think it would be a very, very interesting race. As far as a governor, the race for governor, uh, when Hogan's termed out, I can tell you that that is going to be a hugely crowded field. I can see now, I didn't talk about this yet, but there are some really incredible elected officials in the state house from Montgomery County who are probably going to take a good look at that, which would include Senator Will Smith, who is a state senator from my district in Tacoma Park, Silver Spring. I could see Johnny O, the county executive in Baltimore County, running for that seat. I could see Angela Oselbrooks, even though she'll only have one term in, uh, looking very hard at that seat. So there are going to be some pretty heavy, pretty big heavy hitters, I believe, which is great for the state of Maryland, who are going to be looking um, at that seat. So I think Maryland has a lot going on. Even, you know, let's say Cardin at some point decides he's going to retire. If there's going to be an opening in the U.S. Senate seat, that would open up a whole lot even more at that level. So I think, you you know, you can see people like Congressman uh, Jamie Raskin and other people like him looking, you know, to move up. So in this next four years, I think we're going to see a lot happen. For example, Steny Hoyer's 81 years old. You know, these these guys are like getting up in age. And unfortunately, you know, Senate President uh, Miller is ill and he's in his late 70s. And so I can see either people retiring and actually opening this thing up in ways that we had never we've never seen before. So I think in the next four years, we can look at the county council and the county executive seat. But I think if we look statewide, I think we're going to see a lot of change in the next four years. That positions a lot of people, a lot of people to start looking at what that what that next sort of rung of leadership for Maryland is going to look like. Think about the, um, the redistricting suit that's coming through. Let's assume that the sixth district is probably... It, it, if it goes to a judge, it's probably going to look like, I don't know if you remember when Beverly Byron was in, in office, the 6th District was essentially Frederick West, mm. um, most if not all of Carroll, and then Damascus, and maybe you know the, the northern, very northern tier of Montgomery County, whatever you needed to make the thing, uh, make it work. That looks like a Republican district. Mm -hmm. Then you change, you, have, you then have to change the 8th District, which there's no chance that's ever going to be a Democratic district. But if you change the 8th District, maybe you then change the 3rd District. Mm -hmm. And while the the third district could probably take in, say, Columbia and, and Annapolis, and that may stay Democratic. It's 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 hard to imagine that more dominoes don't fall. And that's true. And then Steny Hoyer's district then becomes a Southern Maryland district, which could be a Republican district. Um, and you know, of course, the first district will stay Democratic. But you know, it, how I don't know what the numbers are in Dutch Rupersburger's district, but there are certainly are an awful lot of Republicans in Baltimore County. Absolutely. So it wasn't that long ago when Maryland was a four-four state. Democrats to Republicans, even though Democrats have a two-to-one majority uh, in terms of voter registration, a lot of those Democrats, at least once upon a time, you know, a lot of those Democrats voted for Larry Hogan. Oh, yeah. So you may be looking at 4-4 on potentially, and if not from the lawsuit, if Hogan gets his way or, or if, or if uh, the, the General Assembly has to fold its cards on some of these maps that they've drawn in the last 10, 20 years. 
you may be looking at another 4-4 a split uh, uh, congressional delegation. Well, I see this a little bit differently. The whole thing about the redrawing of the district lines, I was very engaged in in 2011 when I was council president. And so I remember working with Aisha Braveboy, who was then the chair of the Black Caucus of Legislators in Annapolis. Myself and Donna Edwards and Anasol Gutierrez, a whole bunch of people got together and we said, let's take a look at these maps and try to help them help themselves (laughs) with redrawing these maps. And the reason I'm bringing this up is because within the Democratic Party, there was a big issue about black and brown voters being totally screwed by this map, particularly in Montgomery County. So when they redrew three and eight, and it was four, because Donna Edwards had parts of Tacoma Park and a little north of there in Silver Spring, she got completely wiped out. And four, they just took it out. What that did, uh, and I don't have my civil rights language memorized, but it created a problem in heavily condensed black and brown communities from being able to vote for the person of their choice who might look like them and represent them. And so there there were other legal people saying we, sh- we should file a lawsuit based on that. I just wanted to put that out there as we're talking about Black History Month. There is a huge issue about how in Maryland that needs to be looked at. Okay, that's number one. Number two, when I was running for governor, we got a briefing. Everybody running got a briefing from the DNC about the Maryland map. Pretty shocking. I wasn't surprised myself, but it shocked a lot of people because there are only four places in Maryland that are still solidly blue. Four counties. Prince George's County, solid blue. Baltimore Baltimore City, solid blue. Montgomery, bluish, purplish. And maybe it was only three. That was it. Everything else, if you looked at the map, you're looking at red. So we keep telling ourselves that we're this blue state. We're not. And it's been changing over time. So what you saw in Montgomery County in this last cycle, where Nancy Florine, like, she got kind of wiped out, uh, where Ben Jealous got clobbered because there's, cro- first of all, Republicans are voting in larger numbers, but Dems are crossing over. So, you know, that's kind of a, an interesting tale, right, in terms of Montgomery County itself thinking that it has this solid blue reputation. So, and then Mark Elrich barely beat his opponent in the primary by 80-something votes. Now, the, the person, Blair, David Blair, is a Democrat, but way more conservative of a Democrat. And so we may be seeing the last of what we've enjoyed for those of us who call ourselves progressives in Maryland. So I just love this conversation because we really need to wake up to what we talk about, how we talk about it, why is it important, and what is causing this change. Because the demographics don't like follow that, but the vote the voters don't look like me. They're older and wider and care about things that maybe aren't as important to me. So this is gonna be really interesting to sort of watch Mark Elrich's four years as county executive and how people are going to judge him and his progressive bona fides if he's not a successful county executive and what happens for the people that follow that. By talking about gerrymandering and, and the, the Senate, you, you, you've gotten me off track. 
Because um, <laughs> the question I asked was, what, what's your role in oh, the governor's role. race? So what is okay. your role in the governor's race? My role is to watch and see how the um, field lines up. But running with Kevin Kamenis was like, it was a, one of the most joyful experiences of my life. He was a great man. I learned a lot from him in that short amount of time that we were running mates. And then when I got the opportunity for a very small window to be the candidate myself for a woman, and I hope the women who are listening get what I'm about to say. I would have never expected to do what I did, but once I got myself there, I felt like it was a very natural thing for me to be doing. And so that was a great experience. You're always going to be afraid, but what it taught me was all of my experience came to bear on that campaign. And so if I were to think seriously about doing it again, that's going to be what I'm going to remember when I make a decision. Who else is out there? Who can say the things that I would say, uh, has a, have the kind of experiences that I have? I want to see what candidates can bring all of those things to bear. But I think there's going to be some very, very, very good candidates running in that cycle. Ideologically, I would have thought, because I don't know him, didn't didn't know him very well, that you and Kamenitz were somewhat apart. He was far more moderate than what I think of you. And the fact that you say you, you worked well together, even at the fact that you decided to be his running mate, I was a little kind of shocked. Mm-hmm. It was it was a it was a great decision on his part. And I'll and uh, most people don't got to know Kevin more as you know the race went forward. And then unfortunately after he passed away, people got to know even more about him. We we were a lot more alike than people thought. And what I liked about him, because people get confused with me because I'm not anti-development. I'm not anti-business. I want jobs and growth that are appropriate so that people can make a living, a good living, and live in their community and be able to give back. But he was more progressive than people knew about because in Baltimore County, he did so much more for immigrants with a stroke of a pen than any other county executive did in the state of Maryland. So he was a he was was progressive in his way. He was just, he was so, such, such an old school kind of Baltimore guy. I mean, they don't make him like him anymore. And so together, I thought we were a great team. So who do you like in the presidential race so far, since we've got about 35 candidates to I pick know. from? I know. Oh, I love that question because there's so many people still to get in the race. Yeah. I... You know, I I think I like Elizabeth Warren, which I think would surprise some people. I'm not quite sure about Kamala Harris. I I don't think we know. Why? We don't know enough about her yet. And it's it's great to be the darling in the beginning. I don't know how gutsy she's going to be when things get real rough, because it's going to be to be able to, to be on top of a, of a crowded pool like that. You're going to have to show something that gets people really excited. I, I kind of like Beto O'Rourke, too. You know, the Washington Post wasn't doing him any favors in the last month or so. But there's something about him. You know, there's not there's this not tangible thing that makes people excited. Exciting. Barack Obama had that. And a lot of it, I think it is tangible, some of it. I think it's there's a certain ability for people to, to touch them like they're real. I, I like that about certain politicians because it's become such a, a, a numbers game and, and you know, you got to be all issue driven. But politics is really about the ability to go into a room and people say, you know what, I trust that person and I like them. 
And so he comes across as that guy. And I've been watching Elizabeth Warren, and she clearly comes across like that in person. When people go out to hear her, they have nothing but really great things to say about her. I think she's the other flip side of the coin of Bernie Sanders. So I like O'Rourke. I like her. And I, I'm waiting to see what Kamala does. Because of my, 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 my family connections to Minnesota, I have to throw in a pitch for Amy Klobuchar. I, I, and I read all the articles about after she announced, and they said how what a horrible person she was. But I was reading it thinking, they're describing Barbara, everybody. Well, they're describing Barbara Mikulski, I thought. <laughs> I thought, there is not a soul who doesn't love Barbara Mikulski, except maybe, you know, a few interns and a handful of staff members, you know, so... I like Klobuchar, and I'm glad you brought her up because when I read those articles, I just sort of like dismissed them because you don't get to be them. Right. You don't get to be an Amy Klobuchar if you're just a pushover. You are the U.S. senator from a big, important state, and she won by such huge numbers in the in the November uh, election. There's something about her clearly that people like. I just don't know her and haven't seen too much about her. But I, I sort of dismissed that whole thing about, oh, she's a mean boss. Because you're right, because everybody in Maryland knows that Barbara Mikulski couldn't keep staff. <laughs> because she was pretty hardcore. Right. And uh, you worked for one of her former staff members, correct? I worked for uh, George Leventhal for four years uh, as his chief of staff. So I, I heard all kinds of Barbara Mikulski stories, not just from him, but from, well, as you know, from lots of people. Lots of people. We've gone way past our normal time, and I, <laughs> uh, but I could go for another hour. I love talking politics, and so I'm going to, I think we should wrap it up now so okay. that you can go home. <laughs> this has been uh, Montgomery Talks at Montgomery Community Media's regular podcast on Montgomery County Issues. My guest today has been Valerie Irvin. I'm Doug Tallman, senior reporter at MCM. And our engineer today was Carolyn Wyskoskis. So join us next time. Mm-hmm.